The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, best of all books, thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study of John chapter 4, so please open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We started briefly to look at this story of the woman of Samaria and Jesus' encounter with her. I want to come back to it because this is one of those rich sections of Scripture that has a great many lessons for us, practical lessons, I think, in terms of how we are to conduct ourselves as Christians in this day. So open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We'll go ahead and read through verses 1 through 14. This is an introduction, and then we'll jump into the story itself. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's the, that's the middle of the day, incidentally. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, we're going to go on and read the rest of this passage in just a moment, but just a little bit of a review from what we discussed last week. We were talking about John the Baptist, and then the narrative flows right into this story of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. We said one of the interesting features of this story is that it says that Jesus, as he was making his way from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north, had to pass through the region of Samaria. And I think I pointed out last week that that was not technically the case. You did not have to pass through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. Now, it was the most direct route, to be sure, but it was not the route that most Jews in the first century were accustomed to taking. Most Jews would take a much more roundabout route, a Transjordan route. They would cross the Jordan River and pass up on the opposite bank of the Jordan River and then pass again over to the west into Galilee when they were even with Galilee. 
Um, most Jews did this. It was a much more roundabout route, as I said. It was actually over 100 miles longer. It was really a, a tremendous detour for Jews. But for them, it was much preferable to actually stepping foot in Samaritan territory. I pointed out that the Samaritans were absolutely hated by the Jews. The Jews didn't have any high regard for the Gentiles, who they regarded as dogs, Gentile dogs. You recall Jesus' story about the woman who came and begged for help, and Jesus said it's not right to take food from the children and hand it to the dogs. That's how Jews regarded Gentiles in the first century. They were unclean. But as much as they had no regard for Gentiles, they hated Samaritans even more because they regarded Samaritans as basically compromisers. That back during the time of the deportation with the Assyrians, um, not everybody was completely deported. It's difficult to deport an entire population. And so when the Assyrians took over and they deported the vast majority of the population, a few people were left behind. And those people that were left behind were Jewish, but they intermingled with pagans. And uh, they adopted pagan ways. And so their religion was really syncretistic. It was sort of a blending of Judaism and other pagan religions. And for that, the Jews regarded them as collaborators. In much the same way, for example, that there were some in France during World War II who collaborated with the Nazis and as a consequence were absolutely hated when the Allies came in and they suffered for it. Well, that's the way that the Jews understood Samaritans, and they wanted nothing to do with them. Nothing. And yet this text tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. That should be a tip-off to us that there's something more at play here than just geography. When it says Jesus had to go through this area, that's telling us that he had a divine appointment. And that divine appointment, of course, was with this woman, this woman that he met at the well. Now let's just talk a little bit about her. Uh, it was the heat of the day, the sixth hour. That's the middle of the day. I think I pointed out to you last week that women would draw their water at the beginning of the day. There were a couple of reasons for this, primarily because you needed to have the water available for your daily chores. Uh, normally in a town like this, and you, you understand nobody had tap water. And you just couldn't turn on the water. People had to travel to the town well. There was normally only one town, one supply of water in the town. And so everybody would gather there in the morning, the women in particular, so they had all of their water available for their daily chores. It was also the place where everybody got together and had conversation in the morning. So it was a gathering spot. The fact that this woman was coming to fetch water in the middle of the day is an indicator to us that she was trying to avoid everybody else. And that, of course, is borne out in the story. We know exactly what was going on with her. Um, she was a somewhat notorious woman. Now, when I say Jesus had a divine appointment with her, she really actually had three strikes against her. First of all, she was a woman. And Jewish men did not have contact with women, not just foreign women. They had no contact publicly with women. Uh, a man would not even speak on the street to his own wife or his own daughter was just not done. I had a conversation with a man recently, just this past week as a matter of fact, who was raised Jewish and has become a Christian. But he was telling me that his family are strict Jews. And he said there are some members of his family that when he greets them, he cannot even touch them. He cannot touch the women, still to this day. So here is a woman, and Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. That's most unusual, you understand. In fact, it's interesting. We're told that when the disciples came back, the disciples had been sent off to buy some food. 
They'd gone into town to find supplies. When they come back, the text doesn't say they're surprised to find Jesus talking to a Samaritan. It says they were surprised to find him talking to a woman. Imagine. Talking to a woman publicly. So Jesus was doing that. So she was a woman. She was a Samaritan woman. That was the second strike against her. And she was a notorious Samaritan woman. That too is fleshed out in the story. Uh, we know that she's had multiple partners, multiple husbands. She's a serial monogamist, if you will. And yet, if you think about it, she's a woman just like us. Now, you may not think of yourself as a notorious individual. You may not think of yourself as a serial monogamist. But when I say that she is a woman like us, I mean she is a woman who was missing something in her life. And we're all missing something in our life. None of us is born naturally into the family of God. And many people spend their whole lives searching for that missing piece, whatever it is. And of course, we know what it is. If you're a Christian, you know that what is missing in every person's life is a relationship with the one who made them. And this woman was missing that. She was thirsty. It's interesting. She had come to draw water. Jesus is sitting there on the well. I told you last week when she came around the bend, the last thing she wanted to see was another person. And even worse than that is to see a man. When you've been through that many relationships, probably the problem was partially with her, but not entirely. And I suspect that many of the men that she had known had not treated her altogether well. And all of a sudden, she comes around the corner, and there's another man. That's the last thing that she wants to see. And he decides he's going to strike up a conversation with her, which is the one thing that she doesn't want. And what does Jesus ask her for? He asks her for a drink. And she immediately understands the circumstances, she said. She could tell by his dress, by his manner. She says, how can you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Our people don't have anything to do with each other. And furthermore, this is a little unusual. You shouldn't be talking to me. I'm a woman. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He immediately replies, he said, woman, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking him for a drink. And she looks at Jesus, and she's astonished. What is she astonished about? The fact that he doesn't have anything to draw water with. And so she says to him, what are you talking about? You don't even have a bucket. Typical man. <laughs> you don't even have a bucket. You don't have anything to draw water with. And you're going to give me water? Where are you going to get this living water? What in the world are you talking about? And that's when it happens. That's when Jesus begins to open this woman's heart to be receptive to the gospel. So let's just go ahead and pick up the narrative. Pick up the narrative at verse 15. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Now, at that point, what do you do? She doesn't know this man. As far as she is concerned, he doesn't know her either. And so she replies, I have no husband. She's, you can tell she's already on the defensive. She's on the defensive. And Jesus, like somebody who knows how to fence very well, immediately disarms her. He said, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you are now with is not your husband. 
what you have said is quite true. And the woman at this point realizes she's not dealing with a typical person here, and she replies, I think it's a wonderful response, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> she says, but I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. You're, you're Jewish. You're obviously somebody who has tremendous insight. You know me. I think about that colic for purity. We pray every Sunday at the beginning of the service. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Obviously, you are a prophet. She said, but I don't understand. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Here's what she's doing. It's called obfuscation. Jesus has revealed something uncomfortable about her. And she doesn't like it. And when we find ourselves on the defense and we find that somebody has put us in an awkward place, and what do we do? We obfuscate. We try to change the subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much. You're obviously a prophet. Hey, I got a question about worship. That's what she's doing. She's, she's trying to change the subject here. And Jesus is going to have none of it. He replies to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah, that word Messiah, it means anointed one. Uh, even the Samaritans knew that a Savior was coming, some sort of deliverer. She said, I know Messiah is coming who is called Christ. Christ, incidentally, is not Jesus' name. You understand that? that that's not his surname, Jesus Christ, like Jeff Miller. It's his title. He's, he's the anointed one, Messiah, Christ, that's what it means, the anointed one. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And this is when Jesus gets back to the heart of the matter. And he says to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm not just a prophet. Uh, this is one of the most forthright declarations that we find of Jesus. It's certainly the earliest declaration that we find right here. Uh, a lot of times Jesus was reluctant to make his self known to the people. You'll recall earlier in this gospel when um, we were at the, the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, and they ran out of wine, and his mother came to him and said, you need to do something about this. And Jesus turns to her and he says, woman, this has nothing to do with me. My time, my hour has not yet come. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. If everybody recognized him as the Messiah, they would have all kinds of misconceptions about that. He knew that everybody was anticipating some sort of political messiah or some military messiah who was going to come and drive out the Romans because they thought that was the real oppressor. And he knew that's not what he'd come to do. Did you ever notice that in the last week of Jesus' life, following the raising of Lazarus from the dead, he set his face toward Jerusalem, and as he's going into Jerusalem, there's pandemonium. They're tearing the palm branches from the tree. They're taking off their cloaks and throwing them in front of the donkey. They're shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
It's really interesting to note that in the gospel narrative, up to that point, the crowds that had followed Jesus early on in Galilee had dwindled significantly. But all of a sudden, they're back as he enters Jerusalem for the last time. And they're back. Why? Well, John's gospel, and we'll get to this eventually, makes it very clear. It's because Jesus had performed a very public ministry, a miracle. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. But every other point up to this, when Jesus had raised somebody from the dead and he'd raised other people, you remember he always said, don't tell anybody about it. Don't tell anybody about it. Why? Because he knew that they would want to make him a king. And that's what they wanted to do when he rode into Jerusalem. Here's the king. He's coming. He's going to drive out Pilate and those terrible Romans. But something happened between that Sunday and the next. What happened? Well, what happened was the tide turned. The attitudes changed. They no longer wanted Jesus. All of a sudden, those shouts of Hosanna in the highest become shouts of crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because he wasn't the kind of king that they had anticipated. He wasn't a king who was going to be lifted up on a throne. This was a king that was going to be lifted up upon a cross. And they knew enough of the Old Testament to realize that cursed was anyone who was hung on a tree. So for much of his ministry, Jesus kept it quiet. Don't tell anybody about this. And yet here he is talking to this foreigner, this Samaritan woman, this outsider, and he is very forthright. You're looking for the Messiah? I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. And not just the Savior of the Jews. Salvation comes through the Jews because I'm a Jew. But it is salvation for the whole world. The fact that Jesus was reveal himself to a Samaritan means that there is no outsider. The message of the gospel is open to all. And it doesn't matter how notorious you are. It doesn't matter how sordid, how wretched your life has been. The message of the gospel is open to all. Now, what happens when a person is exposed? Well, one of two things. Either they resist, that's what this woman did initially, or they give in, which is ultimately what this woman did. I want you to understand something. If you are to be a Christian, you have to admit that you've got a problem. You've got to admit that your problem is sin. You've got to admit that you are separated from God. You have to admit that there is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor, and there's nothing you've ever done that is deserving of God's favor. That's what the gospel teaches. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is death. None of us likes to hear that. But what happens if we're receptive to it? What we have, what happens is that, yes, God, like a great surgeon, will cut us open but he will pour upon us the salve of his grace that will bring ultimate healing to those deep, hurting places in our hearts and our souls. And that's what Jesus is going to do. I think, in many ways, this woman becomes the first example in all of Scripture of a person who is born again. Now, you'll recall that in the previous chapter, Jesus had talked about the new birth with Nicodemus, didn't he? Nicodemus, that, that learned man, comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness, and he says to the Lord, 
We know that you are a man who's come from God, for no one could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. But Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now, was Nicodemus, after he had this wonderful sermon from Jesus on the new birth, did he actually experience that new birth? We don't know. Now, some would argue that Nicodemus was born again uh, because he appears at the end of the gospel narrative, at the time of Jesus' death. In fact, he's responsible, along with Joseph of Arimathea, for getting the Lord's body and making sure that it is a proper burial. But there are certain things that are evidence of the new birth that we don't know about in Nicodemus' life. Well, you say, well, he got the Lord's body. He may have done that out of a sense of guilt. I mean, sometimes when you know that an innocent person has suffered, you may feel regret because of that. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and they were to some degree responsible for the Lord's death. It may be that Nicodemus simply was kind to Jesus in the end out of a feeling of remorse or regret. Now, it could be that he's born again, but we don't know for certain. But I think that when you get to John chapter 4, you encounter somebody we know for certain was actually born again, who actually experienced that new birth, who was actually transformed by the grace of God. And this woman. How do we know it's this woman? Let me suggest to you a couple of things about her that is evidence that a new birth has taken place, and if you've experienced it, will be evidence in your life as well. What happens to this woman? The first thing that happens is that she experienced a dramatic change. Just think about some of the dramatic changes. This past week I went through and, and did a little bit of research on what happens when a baby is born. All the changes that take place initially, the moment that a baby comes out of the mother's womb, all of the changes that have to take place. I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm, I'm not a doctor. So if there are doctors out there and they need to correct me, feel free to do it. But I did look this up. There are some extraordinary changes that take place almost instantaneously when a baby is born. What are they? Well, the first thing is this. Their eyes have to adjust to light. Immediately. They've been in, in, in a dark place. The minute they come out, they're in a surgical room with bright lights. Their eyes have to adjust to the light. Their body temperature has to adjust. They've been in a place that is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. They're coming out to a place that's about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. It's 20 degrees cooler. And their little bodies, their skin, everything has to adjust to, a, to the change in light, to the change in temperature. There's a change that takes place in the circulation, apparently. Up to this point, all everything, all the blood has been flowing through the umbilical cord. Now, that cord gets cut, and their blood has to begin circulating immediately through the lungs. This happens moments after birth. There's a valve in the heart that has to close so that the used blood and the fresh blood don't mingle. And that valve remains closed for the rest of their lives. Their lungs must fill with air. And there's a host of other changes in their digestive system, their nose, their throat, their skin, etc. It is dramatic and it is evident. And what I want to suggest to you is that something analogous happens to us when we are reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some dramatic changes should be taking place in our lives. What's one of them? Well, the first thing is a cry of new birth. You know, that's the first thing that the doctor and the mother and the father 
listen for when a baby's born, don't we? We listen for a cry. When you hear the cry, that's a good news. Because we know that that baby is sound and healthy. The same is true for us spiritually. What is true of a baby physically is true of us spiritually. If we have really been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be a cry of new birth. Let me give you a couple of examples. Keep your finger there in John and turn to Acts chapter 9. Now, Acts chapter 9 should be a familiar passage to many of you. It's a very familiar story. It's the story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. I think you know the story. Paul was, at this point, a persecutor of the church. He was deputized by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, to go to Damascus, 110 miles north of Jerusalem, and arrest Christians and bring them back for trial and execution. While he's en route, he encounters the risen Jesus Christ. He's struck blind, and he's knocked to the ground. And he's told that he has to get up. He's led by the hand into the city to the home of a man on Straight Street. And you know the rest of the story. A man by the name of Ananias, a prophet, is sent down to Straight Street to lay his hands on Paul that Paul might receive his sight. Now, understand what a dramatic experience this would have been for Paul. Paul thought that up to this point, he was being a faithful Jew. He was persecuting Christians, which he felt were distorting the Jewish faith. So he thought he was being loyal to Judaism, loyal to God, and on the road to Damascus, he suddenly encounters Jesus Christ and understands that the God he claimed to be serving was the God he was actually persecuting. That must have been a revelation to him. Which meant that there was a lot about Jesus he did not know. And so we're told that he was led in there, he was blind. Ananias came, laid his hands on him, and he received his... Sight. And look at verse 20. Very interesting. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and persecuted those who called upon his name? I think it's very interesting that Paul persecutes Christ, but the minute he realizes that Jesus is who he is, he embraces Jesus Christ, he's baptized, and immediately, what does he do? He goes out and he proclaims Jesus Christ in the world. That's evidence, you see, of a new birth. If you were to have something extraordinary happen to you, if your child got into the school of their dreams, if your child serving in the military won the Medal of Honor, how many of you would like to keep that to yourselves? You want to go out and tell the whole world about it, wouldn't you? Because something wonderful has happened to you. That's a sign of new birth. Jesus himself says, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. But whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Paul, writing in Romans, said that if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. A verbal witness is always the sign. The cry of new life is always the sign of the new birth. And look at this woman. What's the first thing she does? 
I'll go back to John chapter 4 for just a moment. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said to her, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Isn't it interesting that she went out in the middle of the day to avoid talking to the people, and the first thing she does after she encounters Jesus Christ is she goes back into the town to the very people she had tried to avoid and says, come see the one who told me everything I ever did. This may be the Messiah. That's a sign of new birth. If you claim to be a born-again Christian, are you telling people about Jesus Christ? Are you bearing witness to him wherever you may be? That is our calling as Christian people. If Jesus Christ has changed you, if you once were separated but now have been reunited with him, if you have passed from death to life, if you know that your inheritance is the kingdom of heaven, don't you want to tell the world about that? This woman couldn't help it. Here's something else that changes when you're born again. You not only have a desire to share the good news, you also have a change of values. The things that mattered to you before, the things that were priorities in your life, suddenly slip in importance compared to Christ and his kingdom. We see that very evident in this woman. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went back into the town to tell the people. She left her water jar. Now, earlier in the story, that was important, wasn't it, to her? When Jesus says, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask him for living water. She said, you don't even have a jug. And all of a sudden, the jug, the water, all of that, it didn't matter anymore. Only one thing mattered. This one who had managed to open her up, reveal all of her deep, dark secrets, and then pour upon her the salve of his grace and heal her. Here was the first man she'd ever met in her entire life who loved her unconditionally. Who knew everything. You know, that's what every single one of us is longing for. Every single one of you is longing for this. To be fully known and fully loved in spite of it. There's not a person sitting out here this morning in front of me, and this is also true of the man who's speaking to you today, who does not have secrets. Secrets that we are reluctant to reveal to anyone for fear that it will make them love us or think less of us. And here was a woman that knew everything about her. There was nothing hidden. And yet she found that he loved her unconditionally. That's what we all want, isn't it? No more secrets, no more hiding, no more masks to be fully known and fully loved. And everything else changed as a consequence. She had no more fear of what anybody else was going to say about her. She had a complete change in priorities. She went back into the town. Here's the third thing. She had a concern for the lost. She had been lost. 
She wanted other people who were lost. She knew. She was wise enough. She'd been around the block so many times. She knew full well that there were other people just like her. Oh, they may be more respectable in the eyes of the world, but she knew deep down inside they were no different for her. And she had a great love for them. Something was welling up within her. It was that living water. And she had a desperate desire to bring those who did not know Jesus Christ into fellowship with him. Many of you probably have never heard the name of Robert J. Thomas. But he is the man who, in many ways, is responsible for bringing the gospel to Korea. Do you know, of all the Asian countries, Korea is the one with the largest percentage of Christians today. Do you know how that happened? This man, Robert Thomas, in 1866 was a coal porter. He was just a blue-collar worker. But he had a heart for the lost, a desperate heart for the lost. And so he went to China as a missionary. He learned Chinese, Mandarin, and, and, and he began to teach the Chinese people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, understand that in the 1860s, China was a different world, a world apart from the West. But he went there to this foreign land. In those days, they would have said to the heathen to share the gospel. And he was working with other missionaries. But he heard that the Koreans had never heard the gospel. But he did understand that the Korean language was closely associated with the Chinese language. And so he decided to teach himself Korean so that he could take the gospel to the Koreans. Well, he got on an American vessel, headed for Korea. He was loaded down with Bibles because he was working for a Bible translator. So he had all these Bibles that had been translated now into the Korean language. And he desperately wanted to take these to the Korean people. When the American ship got into the harbor, however, it got, the ship's crew got into an argument with the authorities there, the Korean authorities. And the ship's crew were massacred by the Koreans, and the ship was sunk. And Robert J. Thomas was thrown into the water, and he desperately pulled himself to shore, carrying a sack filled with Bibles. And he tore open that sack and began to hand Bibles to the people who began to beat him to death. And that's how the gospel came to Korea. The one Asian country that has the higher percentage of Christians than any other nation. And it came from a man who had a desperate heart for the lost. His own life was forfeit for the sake of others. That's exactly what happened with Jesus, wasn't it? His own life forfeit for the sake of others. Do you have a heart for the lost? They're all around you. Now, I know if you're a longtime Charlestonian, you're thinking to yourself, our city is changing. It is. And perhaps in some ways, not for the best. But let me tell you something. God is bringing people here. And God loves them. And he died for them. And he desperately wants us to reach out to them. The harvest is white. That's what Jesus says to this woman. The harvest is white. Will we have a heart for these people where we share the good news with them? It's the sign of our new birth if we really have been changed.
Here's the last thing the woman does, which is a sign of new birth. She repeats the invitation that Jesus gave to her. Jesus says, go and call your husband or the man that you're living with who's not your husband and come back to me. Bring him to me. And you'll notice that is exactly what the woman does when she goes into town and she finds the other people. She gives them an invitation to come. Come, come see this man. Come meet this man who can tell you everything you've ever done. And he will not condemn you, but who comes to be your Messiah, to be your Savior. Have you ever thought how many times throughout the Scripture that an invitation like that is issued? Come. That was Jesus' invitation to her. It was Philip's invitation to Nathaniel. Do you remember that? Beginning of the Gospel? Come see a man. He might be the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what does he say? Come. Come and see. It's what the angel said to the women at the tomb. Don't be afraid. He is not here. He's been raised just as he said. Come. Come and see the place where he lay. It's Jesus' invitation to the disciples at the beginning of the Gospels. Two of them are out there fishing. Two of them are out in the boat with their father. And he says, come. Follow me. And they left their nets and they left their father in the boat and they went and they followed him. It's the angel's invitation in the book of Revelation to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's Jesus' invitation to all of us, as it was to this woman, come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. That's what this woman did. She issued the invitation that Jesus had issued to her. She issued it to others. And that's how we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that she was not the woman she was when she first met the man. She came away a different person with a whole new set of priorities, with a traumatic change that had taken place in her life and was evident for everyone to see. Let's finish out the story. We'll begin at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Look, look, what were they to see? What they were to see were all those people that were coming out of the town, out of Sychar, to see Jesus, who were coming to him in droves. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. Verse 39, and many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, the fields white for the harvest, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed with them there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world.
Has what happened to this woman happened to you? That's the question. You experience that new birth. Has the change taken place? Do you have a heart for the lost? A change of priorities? A desire to know him whom to know is life everlasting. My friends are coming to Charleston. Look at them. They're coming in droves. Fields are white for the harvest. They need to believe. They need to believe because of our testimony and know for themselves that this is the Savior of the world. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this woman. This woman who was transformed, who was changed. Change was evident in her life. And others were transformed because of her. Because even though her life was laid bare, she nevertheless came under the warming influence of Christ's love. And she went and shared that love with others. And many more believed. Grant that it may be true for us. Cut us open, Lord, if necessary. Reveal our deepest, darkest secrets. Pour the salve of your grace upon us. And make us bold to witness for you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.